You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hi, I'm Solomon Stein, and I'm a research fellow here at the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Today is Friday, February 26th, 2016, and uh, I'm joined here with Roger Koppel. And uh, Roger Koppel is a professor of finance at the Whitman School of Management at Syracuse University. Uh, And he's a faculty fellow at the university's Forensic and National Security Science Institute. He's also the author of Big Players in the Economic Theory of Expectations and From Crisis to Confidence, Macroeconomics After the Crash, as well as numerous articles and topics as wide ranging as phenomenology, forensic science, computability theory, and Austrian economics. Uh, And so I'm very glad to uh, be joined here by Roger. And um, so to start off, just looking at those topics, right, those sort of span a very wide conceptual space. Um, And so you might initially think that they're kind of random, but uh, I imagine that you see a connection between them. Do you, how do you understand that relationship between the various pieces of your work? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be here, Solomon, appreciate it. well, it's, it's all, in my head at least, it's all Austrian epistemics. So Hayek in 1937 writes Economics and Knowledge, this famous paper that came out of really the fight over socialist calculation. There was Mises who in 1920 says, socialism isn't going to work the way you guys think it is. It's not really going to outperform capitalism. On the contrary, it'll be a mess. And so it's not going to generate these good results you think it's going to generate. Hayek picked up on this argument, and um, they had a hard time convincing the profession. And Hayek realizes the problem is knowledge. They have these great, a part of the problem is knowledge. These folks are thinking like the knowledge is just somehow given. The knowledge, whatever that is, is somehow given. And so they're just, they're thinking like guys in the ivory tower with like books and paper. But, but actually, when people are engaged in economic activity, the driving knowledge isn't on in books and on paper. It's in our habits, our customs, our exchanges. It's embodied in strange ways. The egg timer, you know, tells you when to take the egg off the out of the boiling water. So it's not it's, that's knowledge. It's not in your head. So this is just a different picture of knowledge. So in 1937, Hayek writes this paper, Economics and Knowledge, trying to make some of these kind of points. Um, and he says later in 1979 in Hayek on Hayek, this famous sort of uh, book of self-reflection and interviews of Hayek. He says there, this is my big contribution to economic theory, is that is is the is that thirty-seven paper and you know related papers from from that time. Um, so that's and, and and he says in the thirty-seven paper that look, we're, we, we when you, once you start thinking about all these issues, you discover this issue of the division of knowledge. That's just that's maybe even more important than division of labor and economics. We're always talking about the division of labor, but we don't ever talk about the division of knowledge. It's probably actually the more important topic. So if you just think of it in that perspective, it's like, oh my goodness, this is a huge topic. So no kidding, if we range, you know, 
across a, a set of subtopics that otherwise don't seem very much related to one another. Uh, now, one of the really weird, if I, if I may continue. Please. One of the really sort of weird linkages, right? I've got under the same umbrella, I've got this like Alfred Schutz phenomenology, Henri Bergson type of stuff like that. It's very philosophical. Um, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with mathematics. Um, could also seem, and sometimes I have to confess, is, depending on who the thinker is, vague, even sort of mystification. And then I got that in, in this, under the same umbrella with, like, Turing machines and all this so-called computability math that comes ultimately out of the famous Gödel's theorem of 1931, where in some sense he shows that it's difficult to state in a brief compass coherently what exactly the the statement is but in some sense it's saying that um if you have a, that that math is is uh, always open ended right that you can't you can't somehow lay down a finite set of axioms and then crank those axioms to produce all the truth theorems in economics can't do it i mean in the math part of me can't do although it. it does apply to economics as well it, well i i think so and i've <laughs> you know made some forays into exactly exactly that effort uh, so how do those two things, how are they in the same box? Well, the thing is this. If you take seriously the, the Gödel-Turing phenomena, if you take seriously this incompleteness of mathematics, this undecidability of many mathematical propositions, um, then the effort to somehow uh, systematize all uh, our understanding of all dimensions of human knowledge so that we can reduce somehow... Uh, we can have a theory of human knowledge or a theory of, of society that somehow is the algorithmic crank. You know, here's the, the scientific premises. We turn, you know, we, we feed it into the computer. We turn the crank, and out comes every possible truth. That can't be right. That can't be right. It doesn't work in pure math. Okay, so so any um, ma applied mathematical topic with sufficient complexity, it's not going to work there either. Okay, and so. How you know what happens then in a world where there's this these these inaccessible these, these domains of knowledge inaccessible to our explicit scientific reason? Okay. Well, in 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 the world of human action, that gets filled in with understanding, understanding exactly that old philosophical sense from guys like. Uh, Dilte, Alfred Schutz, Henri Bergson, and others, the so-called Lebensphilosophia group. Okay. And so you came at sort of the expectations being the solution to this mathematical problem or these, these sort of subjectivist threads that you see in the phenomenology. Uh, and that sort of leads you eventually to this work, right, the big players and the economic theory of expectations. So... Um, how did you come to think of expectations as being the central problem and, you know, which it was in your sort of early work? And, you know, how are Schutz and I guess I understand your influence in Sch from of Schutz comes from Fritz Machlob. Could you talk a little about sort of that path towards the big player's idea? Actually, the, the first name to mention in this connection is Ludwig Lachmann. I had the extraordinary good fortune to be a student at NYU in the early 1980s when there was, of course, Kersner and also Ludwig Lachmann and Roger Garrison and, and Larry White and uh, Bruce Caldwell and um, 
uh, on and on and on. It was just Dick Langwine. It was just amazing, amazing group of people. So I was there. And very important in this ambiance, very important in this environment is Ludwig Lachman. And uh, Lachman always put the question of expectations, always, always, always put the question of expectations. Lachman was convinced, rightly, I think, that expectations are subjective. So if, you, I, if you've got a mathematical model of economic expectations, probably there's some very severe limits to that model. I would not say, well, if it's a mathematical model of expectations, ipso facto, it's wrong, something like that. I don't think you can say that. But, but it's, it must ought to have some, some limits, right, because ex expectations are really subjective. So Lachman put this point very, 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 very hard to us all in NYU in those, in those years. I don't think he had, uh, like, a good solution for this. But he had a really deep, important, central problem that follows right out of the same Hayek 1937 paper. Let us remember, uh, Lachman was a, a student of Hayek's of sorts. He had his training in Berlin, but worked under Hayek in London as a, a kind of sort of young refugee scholar. So Lachman sort of attempted to present uh, what he thought was a solution to the problem in his work in The Legacy of Max Weber. You know, do you, where do you see that not getting at the solution or at least sort of, you know, that initial direction towards institutions as these points of orientation for these subjective coordination of expectations? Um, I don't think that, that he's wrong to say that. I just don't think that fills in all that much, right? I, I, I don't, that, that's, that's more like wisdom than theory. Uh, so absolutely, um, it's all about institutions. But to fill that out and make it into a theory of expectations is not something Lachman himself did. So that was kind of a project for me. I wanted to do that. Uh, then the sort of the other crucial piece, um, I remember it vividly. I was uh, studying under Leland Yeager at Auburn University in Alabama. Uh, and uh, Dick Langwa came to, down to give a talk to the Department of Economics on a methodological topic. Uh, and my beloved teacher, the great Leland Yeager, uh, had some fun joking, well, I'm going to let you out of class to go to Langwa's lecture today. Uh, the topic is, uh, well, forgive me for using a dirty word, but the, 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 the topic is methodology. And he kind of smiles and chuckles because he's put down methodology. Of course, the truth is uh, Leland Yeager has written some very great and important things on methodology. Um, his real objection, of course, is to substituting um, sort of blather about methodology for doing good science. Okay? That was really his objection, and I certainly hope I have never done that, although one never knows. So, so, so I, I loved methodology. I, I had the good fortune to have worked with Dick Langua and co-authored a paper by the time he came down to to speak at Auburn on this occasion. And I felt a little huffy that my beloved Professor Yeager would say such a thing. And in my uh, vexation, it occurred to me that one could apply. I remember I was walking down the hall to Langlois Lecture, and it occurred to me that one could uh, apply the methodological logic articulated by Fritz Mockloff in um, uh, his 1937 paper, Why Methodology Matters, to the problem of economic expectations. Take the same insight that um, uh, is at the core of rational expectations, that economic expectations are uh, essentially 
uh, economic theory applied at the agent level, okay? but take it out of this sort of mathematical general equilibrium context and put it into this kind of phenomenological context, the Schutzian context, okay? and it gives you uh, a very different theory of expectations. So that was the analytical key. So Lachman gave me the problem. Uh, Mockle of 1937, why bother with methodology, gave me the, the analytical key to sort of unlock the thing. And then the book just kind of followed from that. And so, uh, so what, did, what did the analytical apparatus look like once you sort of got those two pieces together? Sort of what, what is the, the ah, big well, so, player's notion? Right. So the, so the key from, from um, so sort of the highest level of, of, of abstraction, if that's okay, I go there for a second. The key is the anonymity of the economic actor. So, um, you know, how much do I have to know about someone to, to model them crossing the street? Well, not much, right? So I don't have to fill in your psychological detail to understand that you're going to wait for the light, and then when the light turns, you're going to go, and so on. I have to know something about you. I have to know that you that you are familiar with life in a modern city, for example, and won't be confused by the lights or something like this. Um, but I don't need to know much about you. How much do I need to know about you to understand, uh, you know, what career choice you're going to make or what you're going to order at dinner or something like this? Uh, well, now much more, right? So, so Mocklip's point in Why Bother with Methodology is that what we call economic theory, and this, this is, as he says himself quite clearly, this is straight out of Schutz. What we call economic theory is mostly about these rel relatively high anonymous actors, then we can have actually some predictive theories. If it's, if it's okay for me to model the actors without knowing all that much about them in particular and get some conclusion, then that conclusion is probably pretty, pretty reliable. Um, well, says Mockloop, what about something like, you know, how the central bank is going to behave, what central bank policy is going to be? No, you got to really know who the central bankers are. Right? So you have to have a pretty detailed, concrete model of who those actors are. And now it looks more like history than theory. So, so uh, I draw from this the inference that you know predictive state, you know predictions based on low an anonymity ideal types, predictions based on you know a model of somebody that's 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 got to be um, you know laid out in some psychological detail. They're less reliable. Okay. Now, once I make that bring that insight into my understanding of how people form economic expectations, suddenly I realize, oh, if I'm trying to outguess the central banker, if I'm trying to psych out the central banker, good luck with that. Okay? So if I have instead um, a decentralized monetary regime where there is no central banker, okay, then an anonymous ideal types will do, right? Just a general understanding that, you know, uh, banks respond to their incentives and, um, uh, the usual customs will be uh, followed, allows me to have confidence in my expectation about things like future prices and maybe even make some reasonable uh, guesses about future interest rates. When I have to psych out the central banker, well, I can't. So you're sort of connecting the coordination of knowledge to the fact that when we're coordinating, and it doesn't matter who in particular I am for this, if, as long as you know that, say, I'm a human actor, Right. So this is sort of my uh, the understanding I've always had of what Schutz is doing is there's this critique of Max Weber's use of the ideal type. Yeah. Right. By Mises that says, look, when you're dividing up people by these sorts of action, they do. Right. You have action based on values. You have action based on rationality, et cetera. That's those are all going to be 
action in the he really says it's all rational action and that it's all goal oriented. And so Schutz is trying to say, well, if we think about what that is, that's just the most anonymous ideal type. Um, well, I'm, and that sort of allows for the ideal type to an economic theory to, to merge in a way that Mises with his sharp distinction between theory and history says ideal types as historical things, like Weber says, can't be the same as theory that I'm talking about. Yeah, I think I, I think you're getting at the right point there in terms of Mises versus Schutz. So 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 Mises was trying to make economics a priori. It's not entirely clear, you know, what he even meant by that, or whether he was self consistent what he said about that. But he was somehow trying to make it sort of like you know geometry. It's all a priori, just you know clear thinking, and then that's economic theory. Uh, but Mises uh, was a smart guy. He recognized, okay, but we got to fill in these ancillary assumptions with more, you know, particular content. So there's nothing in a priori knowledge that says labor's obnoxious. But generally, for most people at the margin, you know, less labor, labor's toilsome. We don't like it. Less is better. Um, so that's an empirical assumption, right? So that's 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 off the, the highest level of pure theory. Um, so somehow Mises was trying to, on, on, on lines like this, he was trying to make some kind of sharp distinction between pure theory and then, you know, something that's history. Um, and Schutz, I think, really showed convincingly that this was an error, that there's a gradation. At, at the very highest level of abstraction, the sort of greatest level of purity, if you wish, yeah, it really pretty much is all just pure reasoning. We have some idea about people act toward ends and so on. Um, so just our, our knowledge of this sort of inner logic of human action is all we need. We don't need any actual experiential knowledge to work out the conclusions. And then as we go down to lower and lower and lower levels of concrete, of uh, anonymity, more and more and more concrete understanding of particular facts, not just that people generally don't like to work, but, you know, uh, that we're now in the Industrial Revolution or we're in a medieval German village or whatever like that. Now, you know, at, at some point we're, we're clearly ending up in history, okay? Uh, well, where do you draw the line between theory and history? Schutz showed it's largely a matter of taste, okay? That's the analytical distinction there between Schutz and, and Mises. And I think Schutz was right, and I don't think Mises ever absorbed the lesson, even though he clearly points to Schutz a couple of times and says this guy's important and wonderful. So, so I can see now, I think, in that description, how you get towards uh, forensics. So would, would you talk a little bit about sort of how you see sort of the big players issue or just expectations and knowledge in general, since that's been a big part of your work more recently? Well, yeah. So in the big, in the big players theory, in the theory of expectations, one of the things that helps to generate prescient expectations is competition. Because competition uh, constrains us. And the more tightly you are constrained, uh, the more tightly you are constrained, um, the less discretion you have, then the less I have to know about you in order to have a good idea what you're going to do. Okay? Um, <clears throat> now, when we turn to forensic science, uh, the, the shocking discovery I made at a certain point was we have no competition in, in forensic science. It's monop what I call monopoly epistemics. If, if, if the police send you, the crime lab, evidence, the, the chance that that evidence is going to show up in any other crime lab is very low. 
might, almost might as well be zero. Okay, uh, but maybe not quite zero. C cases get reopened, but low probability. Anybody, other crime lab is going to look at that evidence. Not only that, it's a low probability that any other crime lab or forensic, you know, uh, set of analysts would interpret the consequences of the, the, and the meaning of the tests that you did. Okay? So we have this twofold monopoly in forensic science of, of both test and interpretation. Um, well, there again, you know, that lack of competition we may suspect is going to generate poor results. And I think I show that, it, unfortunately, it does in forensic science. The, the, the problem, one of the problems, there's a couple of problems with monopoly epistemics in forensic science. One of them, is, one set of problems is just stuff like, you know, these crime labs are organized under the police, they're working for the police, so there's terrible bias, and then there's no competition among the crime labs, so there's nothing to check or counter or balance that bias, so it's just a one-way street. So, so that's, that's terrible. There, there's also the fact that if if you have a monopoly on the interpretation of the evidence, the testing and interpretation of the evidence that's sent to you, we never get a reality check on your work. You might be super conscientious, trying to do everything right, be a scientist, all of that. You are great. But if there's some infirmity in what you're doing, we'll never know because we never get a reality check on your work. So that's another way how you know this monopoly epistemics just uh, is contrary to the goal of, of, of veracity. So... Uh, something that also occurs to me in that is actually that when you just talk about how now you have to know a lot about the sort of non-anonymous particulars of each individual forensic expert, if the goal of sort of these systems is both veracity but also predictability in the sort of sense of a rule of law, right? I don't know if your work has explored this in particular, but it's sort that's of endangering. A new, that's a new thought for me, so I, 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 I don't have a response to that, but that's very interesting. Certainly the rule of law is real important. I'm an advocate of the rule of law. The rule of law is not so easily achieved. It's got to have the right institutional structure. Um, you're saying that that monopoly epistemics is in some degree uh, frustrates the rule of law. I think that's right. Yeah. In the, I think that's right. I think that's a, that's a terrific insight. In the yes. sort of, you know, the rule of law is about this sort of objective, predictable, universal application of a set of principles, but this is a very particular, non-anonymous yes. application. Because the, the forensic scientist, um, in many, many cases, uh, many, many cases, is making a, a, a subjective judgment. And when he's got a, a, a monopoly right to make that subjective judgment, then that's, that's pure discretion. And... Um, the essence of the rule of law is the absence of discretion. So uh, that's a wonderful connection, and I think you're quite right about that. So uh, in a different context, you have been a, not quite a monopoly expert, but you were the editor uh, of Advances in Austrian Economics, which is a was a long-running and I believe is a continue long is oh, a yes. long-running series long -running. of, uh, of, I've always, they're sort of in between an edited volume and a journal sort of. So sort of what was it like being that? How does your work on, you know, expertise and epistemics influence being an editor and just sort of, you know, everything about the publishing process? Well, I don't know if I'd want to be called an expert editor or an expert anything after all my work on experts. I, the term expert, which most of the time is like, oh, that's great. You know, now I'm like, oh, I'm skeptical of that. Placed in the position of having expertise and decision authority. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. You know, it's, it's a problem, right? Because you, you do have to make a decision as an editor. 
Um, so you do always worry that, you know, am I sort of exercising my discretion, you know, wisely, prudently, appropriately, or am I just like being unpleasant or something? Um, but, you know, unlike forensic science, uh, in, in academic uh, journals and research annuals, I always call the advance as a research annual. annual um, there is competition. There are other journals. So, so if you go off the rails, well, that's bad. You shouldn't go off the rails. But there is, um, this, in the system, there is some corrective. Uh, but, but you wanted to know what, just sort of what I learned from that? or Yeah, and both sort of, how you know, experience? there's competition. But as we know, it's not over homogenous product. Yeah, so what yeah. was sort of the, where did you see your product differentiation to be? And also... Oh, well, what, what we tried to do, uh, what I tried to do as uh, editor and then uh, later Steve... Uh, Horowitz was my co-editor. We were trying to make the explicit, it's explicit in our editorial philosophy written down in the first volume of uh, advances that I edited. Um, we were trying to bridge the Austrian tradition with non-Austrian traditions. So I kind of think of Austrian economics as uh, certainly not as a body of doctrine. Um, but as, as a tradition. And to me, the tradition really, it's, it's the Mises cries in Vienna. In other words, there was Ludwig von Mises in Vienna, and he would meet regularly with this, this group of other Viennese thinkers in this so-called circle. So um, this was one of many circles, the um, Schlichtkreis being the famous one. Um, that's, you know, the so-called, what, what out in the outside world was called the Vienna Circle. But in really, in Vienna, they had all these many circles. So there was Mises. He, he would meet with these guys regularly. And it was an amazing group of people. So to me, that's kind of, you know, everything that comes down from that is the, is the Austrian tradition. Um, well, there are other traditions. There are other traditions within economics. There are other traditions within social science. There's other traditions outside of even social science. Um where there may be fruitful communication, fruitful exchange uh, with the Austrian tradition. After all, the point of the division of labor is, is to exchange. It's the system of specialization and exchange. So if you have all specialization, no exchange, that's what's the, what's the profit in that. So the, the very first volume I edited, if, if my memory is correct, uh, tried to uh, draw links to the entrepreneurship tradition. There's this wonderful, relatively new literature on uh, entrepreneurial studies. It's, it, we now have PhD programs and um, departments and journals all on entrepreneurial studies. I think this is a great development. Uh, and I've long felt uh, that we need a richer communication between uh, and more brisk trade between the Austrian tradition and this, tradi this emergent new tradition of entrepreneurial studies. So that was my first volume, and I'm, I'm very proud of it. Uh, and later, and I was able to get uh, many wonderful contributors, including uh, Will Baumel, who wrote, I think, a beautiful paper on Austrian entrepreneurial studies and Austrian economics. So uh, just an interesting note, given your discussion of Lachman earlier, is there's a, a paper... I believe in 1979, he writes, where at the very end of it, he actually defends the idea of being a very self-conscious member of a school. And so as a, someone who works on doctrinal history, I sort of feel compelled to defend the idea of Austrian economics as a, at least subjectively understood as a body of doctrine, right? And his, his argument is that in the same way that we all need to exchange, there only need to, a market of entirely brokers is doomed to fail. And uh, he says well, that it's... It's comforting sometimes to know where one belongs in that sense. I don't 
recall that paper. I, I may have read it and just I don't recall it anymore. It's at the very end of a note on Hicks, I believe. But Then probably have read it at some point. But anyway, I, I don't remember that ar- argument. I mean, look, our first, our first, I think if you ask me to put on my philosopher science hat, I think um, schools of thought are, are, are good, uh, but also inevitable because we're primates. We human beings were primates, and the human primates fall into factions and groups, and the groups, you know, grow hostile to one another. That's just somehow in our hardwiring. So uh, it's inevitable, but I also think it's good um, be- because um, it's, it's a part of the division of cognitive labor in, in science. So, so that's fine. But for each of us, as, so great, wonderful, all that. On the other hand, for each of us as an individual, you, you really got to go. You have an obligation to go where the truth takes you. So if you're raised in a tradition, if you're in a school, uh, it is only n- natural that you're disposed to believe in the doctrinal fundamentals of that school. Mm-hmm. Try as you might to be open-minded. It's likely, if you were raised in that tradition, that at least the preponderance of those doctrinal uh, positions are going to be your positions as well. Um, but if you find instead that this, that, or the other piece of doctrine is no longer persuasive to you, you got to tell the truth like you see it. That's your first duty. And indeed, why would you do this work if that wasn't your attitude? Go be a businessman. I mean, you know, it's great being as lovely work being a intellectual and a college professor. It's great work, but um, it's 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 not the you don't. Nobody became a, a, a billionaire tycoon by being a good college professor. So. Well, I think certainly that the fact that Lockman made that and he was he's sort of you know famous for being the gadfly of that that time in, at NYU and. Uh, but he was the one who, who was saying, no, it's still comforting to be a member that's of a, a school. That's a great point. That there's, there's, a, there's a charming uh, irony in the fact that this gadfly who was so discombobulating to the pre-existing Austrian vision uh, was himself uh, extolling the, the glories of, uh, of a school. That's great. So, so beyond Machlop and Kersner and Lachman, were there any other big influences in you? Oh, and Jaeger. Uh, yeah, Jaeger was a big influence. Your time um, at NYU or at Auburn. What? How did you get to NYU in the first place? Sort of where did you? Well, I I was a economics student at Cleveland State University. I loved economics. It was really interesting, um, but I found the the topics and the questions more interesting than the models. Uh, I graduated from Cleveland State University in 1980, so I mean. This was the nadir for interesting economics. I mean, uh, certainly, especially at the at the under, level of undergraduate pedagogy. I mean, it was just mind-numbing stuff. So, so, so the introductory the introductory micro the principles micro. Okay, that was cool because that's really the core of economics. So that was great. And then uh, intermediate micro was still pretty good, although now we're drawing indifference curves and all this stuff, and it's sort of neat, and it's puzzle solving and stuff, and it's cool, and it's fun, but it doesn't have the same fresh excitement as the principles class. Uh, and the, the macro, intermediate macro was just a nightmare, because it's like the, the professor writes an equation on the board, and, and then somehow that's reality, which I could never understand that. So, so these were the sorts of experiences I was having as an undergraduate. The topics were terribly important. The really core of it 
the, the micro you learn in, in, well, in those days it was principles two. You did, you did principles one was macro, principles two was micro. So the, 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 the micro you did in principles two, that's the real stuff. It was just wonderful. Uh, and the rest of it was just dry, dry, dry. And the, the more advanced your studies, the drier, drier, drier it got. So um, that kind of put me on the path to to seeking out because I, I, I at that point I was hooked. I was I wanted to to somehow be a scholar if I could. Um, but I didn't know if I wanted to do economics because it was so dry. It didn't seem like they were really getting at the questions. Uh, and a philosopher at Cleveland State who was actually only visiting Cleveland State named Roger Pryor told me that I should look into this Austrian stuff. There was Kersner's the economic point of view, and I just felt like, oh, this is, this is it. This is it. They're asking the right questions. They're at the right level of sort of, you know, human understanding with this stuff. Uh, you know, e e economics is now about human beings, and not about the curves. This was the big problem. You take, as I said, what was in those days, principles two. You take that first microeconomics class and you're talking about human beings. Then you get in the advanced classes and you're talking about curves. What happened to the human beings? So, so I just was very excited about that. I didn't really know very much about Austrian economics. Um, and by the time, I, for a brief period, I considered myself a libertarian as an undergraduate, but that was... I mean, a matter of a few weeks. Uh, by the time I got to NYU to study as a graduate student, I totally repudiated any feeling of being a, a libertarian. So it's kind of an odd experience. I showed up very excited about the question, very aware of who Kirzner was, very aware of who Mises was, but not very well informed, actually, on the Austrian tradition, uh, nor even um, much of a, of a libertarian. Um, and yet they were kind enough to take me in their program and uh, uh, fund my studies as uh, a budding Austrian economist, and it was a it was a wonderful experience. So, um, one one thing I didn't mention in your opening bio, but that is always proudly displayed in it uh, most places, is that you have an Erdos number of three. <laughs> and uh, so, so right. if you had to, if I had to tell anybody that that there is an economist with an Erdos number of three, they would not guess Austrian. That's so, right. Uh, how how did that come about? Where is that interest from? Right, the computability obviously ties into the epistemics, but the particulars of working in the the math of it. Well, yeah, I think I think I first acquired. I'm not quite sure. But I think I first. Well, we first of all, wait a minute. We better explain what an Erdos number. Oh yes, <laughs> it, it looks like it ought to be pronounced Erdos, and I for a long time said mistakenly Erdos, uh, because it's. Um, leaving out the so-called diacritic marks, you know, little dots and dashes and check marks and stuff over the letters. The the, the name is spelled E-R-D-O-S. Yes. Um, Paul, but apparently it's pronounced something more like Erdish. So Paul Erdish was a famous mathematician. Uh, it, it was said by one wag in reference to Erdish that uh, mathematics is a... Uh, that, uh, mathematics is a machine for turning coffee into theorems. And the joke was that Erdish uh, consumed uh, amphetamines and coffee and uh, was always a little bit wired. And that's how he did his math. So apparently, he was, he was quite a character. Apparently, if you're a mathematician, you may get a, a knock at the door one day. And, um, you know, a Sunday morning, you're in your uh, bathrobe and pajamas and you open the door. And there's Paul Erdish 
and he says, hello, let's write some theorems. Yeah, is your mind open? Right? <laughs> right. And so, so he, he lives with you for like two weeks or a month or however long, and you write three papers, and then he goes on and knocks on somebody else's door. This apparently was the lifestyle of Paul er Erdős. So he, had, he wrote many papers. So it's, it's like the six degrees of separation. It's, it's like, you know, the, the six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon, right? Have you co-authored with Paul Erdős? Have you co-authored with somebody who co-authored with Paul Erdős? Have you co-authored? So, so Paul Erdős is the only one with an Erdős number of zero. His co-authors have an Erdős number of one. Okay, uh, And then a, a few people, a few hundred people, if I recall correctly, have an Erdős number of two. And then, uh, and then, and then there's three. So I have a, I proudly say that I have an Erdős number of three. And through you, it is propagated through uh, many Austrians now That's as right. well. Now I think I first got a finite Erdős number from uh, co co-authoring a paper actually that used. Um, uh, no, actually, uh, no. I, I think the first way I got it was co-authoring a paper with Barclay Rosser on bubbles, complex bubble uh, formation in closed-end country funds. Uh, and then we later went on to write a paper, a uh, co-authored paper on um, uh, applying notions of computability to economics. So at that point, I had a finite Erdős number. But then, surprisingly, it was my work in, in um, forensic science that got my Erdős number down from about six to three, five or six to three, because um, one of the people who works in... Um, forensic science on some of the sort of technical problems of Bayesian inference and things like this is a guy named Sandy Zabel, who's a mathematician at Northwestern. And uh, Sandy Zabel has an Erdős number of two. We wrote a small note uh, uh, for a forensic science journal on something. Sandy, myself, and several other people. Um, but it was published. It was original research. So we have a collaboration. So uh, with Sandy as my co-author, I now have an Erdős number of three. So you mentioned your collaboration with Barclay Rosser, who's uh, a noted sort of, I guess, also heterodox economist. Yes. Uh, I don't really know where to put him in the, <laughs> the the handy list of schools. I don't really think of him as necessarily a rigid post-Keynesian. He's not an old institutionalist. He's sort of there and very interesting. Well, when, when, when Barclay and I met um, and when we wrote together, we may very well write together again in the future, but it's been a few years since we've written anything together. Uh, so when we met and when we wrote together, he ident was identified by others and identified himself as a post-Keynesian. As far as I know, I think he still maintains that identity. Um, but it's true that he's very broad. He's important now, actually, he's become important within the Austrian school, comes up here to George Mason often to visit um, so it's true that it's difficult to classify, to categorize Barclay and his work. It's, it's, it's quite uh, interestingly idiosyncratic and broad. As a, around a decade ago, in fact, I believe a decade ago this year, you uh, were president of the Society for the Development of Austrian Economics, and your presidential address dealt with sort of this broad heterodox notion. It was titled Austrian Economics at the Cutting Edge. And uh, so how did... How did you sort of understand where that cutting edge was then? And uh, importantly, I think, you know, the question of it's, you know, the decade is the nice round number for retrospective. What What is, how have things changed in Austrian economics in the rest of the discipline? Where do you see sort of the F.A. Hayek program fitting into your vision of that or how you see it now? I mean, it's, it, it's amazing. It's great. Um, the, the key word is complexity. 
there was this this Santa Fe complexity movement, okay? Which interestingly, one of the original architects was a guy named Ken Arrow. So uh, it's kind of funny how you know some of these things uh, are connected. So um, a, 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 at least as the t story is usually told, some people object to the story, but as the story is usually told, we got the we got PCs. Professors got PCs on their desktops at a certain point, and they started playing with them. And this this was a new tool that allowed them to develop and think about and talk about and draw inferences from complexity models. Uh, so. Uh, Brian Arthur, Stuart Kaufman, and others uh, were the, the original founders of the Santa Fe Institute in, uh, of course, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, that tried to work out the, the complexity theory and the implications of complexity in the natural and social sciences. Um, well, it, it took off within economics. Uh, it has transformed economics. When Paul Krugman received the Nobel Prize, it was for work that used the tools of complexity theory. Okay? So I kind of think of that as the complexity prize. Um, so, uh, and Barclay is very important in that, uh, Barclay Rosser is very important in that group. Uh, another co-author of mine, Stu Kaufman, is, is very important in that group. So in the, in the presidential address you referred to, it seemed to me that um, this new complexity theory was transforming mainstream economics to make it look way more Austrian. Because another guy that the complexity theorists talk a lot about is a guy named F.A. Hayek. And yet another guy that often comes in for a, a, a mention as well he should is a guy named Adam Smith. So somehow, you know, Hayek says we were Darwinians before Darwin. We were also complexity theorists before Santa Fe. And, um, so this is what I saw 10 years ago, was that this was taking off. It was, it was gaining ground. I remember, you know, I, I, earlier in our chat, I discussed the, how, how tedious the economics was that I was learning in 1979 and 1980. Um, that had changed by the time we get to my presidential address. After 1980, things really opened up. So all of a sudden, bounded rationality is a real thing. Rule following is a real thing. Institutions are real things. Cognition is a real thing. Evolution, expectations, these are all real things. Um, hence, you know, BRICE, Bryce Economics. Uh, and in the, in, in the 10 years since that address, it's shocking to me that it's been 10 years. That's amazing. In the 10 years since that, uh, I gave that address, uh, things have only moved more in that direction. In fact, there's been a kind of convergence. Uh, Austrians have become, I think, much smarter about using tools outside of our sort of original tradition, including sometimes often mathematical tools like agent-based modeling, to develop Austrian themes and explore new ideas. And the rest of the profession, the so-called mainstream economics, has also uh, picked up these same tools and thereby been driven to a more Austrian understanding of the market process. So it's a, it's a beautiful convergence. It's a great time to be an Austrian economist. We're uh, very much, I think, on the on the on the vanguard. As I felt ten years ago, I feel that even more today. So, uh, do you think there's a disconnect between sometimes as well micro and macro in that regard? I know mm -hmm. that, for instance, right, the other book we mentioned at the beginning is about macroeconomics uh, after the the crash, and so right there, do you think that those ideas have had the same penetration, or are we still... Oh, yeah, that's very interesting. Even No, I don't, but, but there's something really interesting about the crisis. 
because if you, if you look, you know, so so we're talking about the crisis of two thousand and eight. Some people date it to two thousand and seven, but you know, um, there was not only a, a recession or depression, but there was also the acute financial crisis that hit the fall of night of two thousand eight. So um, one of the things that happened in the wake of the crisis was that economists who are not considered to be Austrian economists gave an Austrian interpretation of that crisis. So it, it's, it's a pretty, I think, one of the sort of pro-Austrian you know, consequences of this terrible crisis that we sure would have rather not had is that um, it's now on the radar screen of mainstream macroeconomics that the interest rate mechanisms crucial to the Austrian theory of the trade cycle are real and important. Okay? So that's a huge, wonderful change. Uh, the t so far, though, the toolkit, the so-called DSGE modeling toolkit, that hasn't—that's not show—we—that's not showing signs of uh, passing away, which is disappointing. Many of us, myself included, thought, "Well, that's it for the old methods." Right now, finally, complexity theory, which has taken over all the rest of economics, is going to make its make a, a march on macroeconomics. And macroeconomics is finally going to give up all this this non-complexity stuff of agent-based modeling, equilibrium always, general equilibrium, representative agent-based modeling, as opposed to agent-based modeling. Right. Oh, did I say the wrong thing? Yeah, exactly. Just to make sure that that's that, that, right. Right. The, the Those are two very different things. Absolutely. You bet they are. Right. So in agent-based modeling, you have heterogeneous many heterogeneous agents okay, generating unintendedly some macroscopic or macroeconomic outcome. And in the so-called DSGE modeling of, ortho, of mainstream macroeconomics, yes, representative agent modeling. So it's almost like anti-complexity, right? Yeah. Um, Professor Dick Wagner always says that it's if you were trying to model a traffic jam using representative agents, it would be one large car driving backwards. <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. So you know, I thought that was that stuff was out the window. I thought it was you know the death knell for DSGE modeling, or at least I hope so. And I thought there was a good chance it would it would go. So far, it doesn't look like that's happening. So I can't say that complexity theory has invaded macro. It hasn't happened yet. Um, on the other hand, you mentioned a very important name. Richard Wagner here at George Mason, he's working on making exactly such a march, and he has some very interesting and skilled students working with him on this project. Uh, so this could be another time when the Austrians are able to be in the vanguard, show the way, and maybe, maybe, maybe pull the rest of the profession finally in the right direction. Yeah, I, in in thinking about the just the title of the of the thing from prices to confidence, I think about also your work on experts in that. If you think about sort of the dialogue about how the policy responses in the crisis worked, you have, you know, oh, individuals yes, inside the system seem to have the sort of triumphal, we we did it, we saw what was going on, we flooded the market, we saved, you know, the, the intermediation. And uh, so in some ways that ties into me with your theories of expertise in that, you know, to understand Ben Bernanke and how he understood the crisis and his response and then his sort of updating process in the wake of it, right? So Bernanke was not one of the people who decided that Hayek or Hyman Minsky or many other people who were sort of forgotten monetary theorists was suddenly coming in. Instead, and, you know, as the person in power, well, see, this almost updated him towards confidence in the DSGE universe that he had 
risen to prominence in. You're totally putting your finger on the right thing. See, the point exactly is that the big rents in, in macroeconomics, the big rents are outside of the academy. It's, it's, it's that job like chairman of the Fed. So, so there's a rigid hierarchy that culminates out in being one of these powerful experts. Okay? So it's all about being an expert. It's all about control. It's the economics of control, you know, updated. Um, so, so that, I think, is the key to why complexity ideas have not made greater progress within macroeconomics, why the DSGE modeling technique has not been damaged by the crisis. Okay? And indeed, you, you said something really right. These guys are actually pluming themselves. Oh, look, we saved the day. Yay for us. Whereas if we had institutions that did not empower macroeconomic experts, we'd had a much less, you know, we wouldn't have had the crisis. Yeah, I recall one of the first things that got me personally in economics was a, a book written under the pseudonym Adam, pseudonym Adam Smith called The Money Game. And uh, there's a discussion in there of the Penn Central bailout, which is very much a 40-year presage of the financial crisis. And in there, he has a description where all the bankers are celebrating. And he says that we should always be worried when people, right, the banking is not supposed to be an exciting profession. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's very much reminds me of the same thing. How, yeah, how different, you know, banking was in the past. Many of your listeners will have seen that the old Walt Disney movie, Mary Poppins. And uh, the bankers are all, you know, in fact, they, you know, the poor bankers get raked over the coals in that movie. Uh, but, but, but there's some, there's a certain truth in how they represent um, bankers of that era. They were very, you know, staid, solid, reliable steady on people. Uh, we no longer have such an image of bankers. Why? Because your reputation for prudent judgment, your reputation for prudence is no longer important to you as a banker or a banker because the government's got your backstop. We'll back you up. Okay? So, so this, this sort of sociological change in, in, in our, our mental image of, banksters, of uh, bankers, uh, who we now call often banksters, um, reflects a real institutional change. Yeah, we have sort of the, it used to be that there were the bankers and the, they were the guys in the big plush office chairs, right, that now are like, you know, parodied for being these old, you know, and then they were the staid guys holding mutual funds and then they were the speculators doing all this wild entrepreneurship, you know. Yeah, and yeah. now, you know, you have the, just the total combination because those people who were acting, right, holding the risk and the people who were willing to take the risk are just, well, as you said, right, they don't really need to take the risk. They just need to reap the speculative yeah, yeah. profit. You, you and I are taking the risk, yeah. not, the, not, not the, the people actually making the decisions. That's right. So uh, there's something also that's personally interesting to me about your time at NYU, which is that your years overlap very much with the beginnings of the sort of debate within Austrian economics between Kersner and Lachman over the nature of equilibration and how to think about equilibrium as a construct in uh, in the market process. So do you have any sort of recollections of that debate from your perspective? Where were you, were, were you a Lachmanian or a Kirsnerian? How, oh, yeah. how did things I was, go? I was totally on Lachman's side. Um, you, you know, the, the, part of the issue with Lachman was that uh, he, was, he was empowering. He was empowering in part because when you met with him in his office, you were his equal. So that was wonderful. Um, 
Now, you know, Israel Kirzner is, is truly a humble man, so it's not like he was ever lording it over anyone. But Lachman somehow had uh, the ability to make you feel like he needed your insight, we are in this together. He just somehow was able to, to make you feel that way. So that was very empowering. And then he had this one word, and this one word was a club. You take any economic argument, any economic topic, you don't know anything about it, but you pick up your club and you can beat the hell out of it. And that word is expectations. So that was sort of glorious and horrible at the same time. It was glorious. It was very empowering, and it put me onto this, all these epistemic issues that I think are so important. Uh, on, on the other hand, I'm not actually learning to understand the world any better. I'm not actually making any progress in science if all I can do is pick up my club that says expectations and beat other people with it. So it was kind of, you know, it was, it was, it was a blessing and a curse at the same time. I was totally on the Lachman side. The others, uh, I think in particular of, of George Selgin, they were on the, on the Kersner side. Well, this was great. We would fight with each other. We would have these arguments. And it made, uh, you know, having these arguments made, made partisans among the graduate students on each side of the debate smarter and better. We were better scholars because of this, you know, uh, urgent fight, as we viewed it, between uh, Lachman and Kirsner. Yeah. So, uh, so when you were around, I guess, 1982 would be the publication of The Market as an Economic Process, yeah, Lachman's yeah. book. Did you, that for you also, like the legacy of Max Weber, wasn't quite operational, I guess, enough? My, my copy of that book is literally held together by scotch tape. I got, the, I got a paperback copy, uh, and it's marked up and marked up and then marked up again uh, to the point where it's just fallen apart. I mean, if, if I tug this a little bit on the front cover, it comes off. Uh, so that's a wonderful book. It's a great book. And, and, and the, the most important essay in that book is the 1942 essay, The Role of Expectations in Economics as a Social Science. So a, as much as I feel like I had to sort of um, get beyond the, pro the beautiful problem statement offered by Lachman and, and, and use a different set of tools that he did not use in order to make progress on the problems he directed us to, that book points us to the problems. It's beautiful and very important. So, uh, I mean, uh, another book that came out about that time was uh, O'Driscoll and Rizzo. Yes, Economics uh, of Time and Ignorance. The Economics of Time and Ignorance. So, uh, that was really good luck to be in New York at NYU at the time that they were putting that book together. It just changed everything. Um, and the sort of Kersner camp viewed it as uh, anathema at the time. I think now everybody, I think everybody understands, no, it's okay, you know what? Curse, uh, uh, Rizzo, uh, uh, Driscoll and Rizzo were right. Uh, this is sort of the, you know, the new chapter in Austrian economics, etc. But at the time, it, it seemed to many, uh, I, was on, I was on, again, the Driscoll-Rizzo side. I just love that book right from the start. But others who would now celebrate that book, rightly, uh, at the time viewed it as, you know, just a disaster, just I... a big disaster. Uh, Kersner and Lachman both reviewed it separately for uh, the market process, the journal that was edited out of the Center for the Study of Market Process, now the Mercatus Center. And it's both of them are sort of each thinks that the position that Rizzo and O'Driscoll took was too much conceding to the other side. So, yeah. so 
Kurzer says, right, it seems like the middle between equilibrium always and complete nihilism is a razor thin edge and they've fallen off. And then Lachman also says, no, like this is too much, you know, sort of not explicitly too much equilibrium, but that they're sort of not pushing it as far as it could go. And then and then what 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 I've tried to argue, what I tried to argue in my 2002 book on big players and the economic theory of expectations is that where you are between these sort of poles of disequilibrium and equilibrium, how well the equilibration process is working depends on big player influence. It depends on institutions, on the rules of the game. And 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 so what we really have here is not a fight that we have to decide where between the two poles, you know, is reality. What we have instead is, is the question, what institutional arrangements encourage us to go more toward the one pole, and what institutional arrangements instead tend to drive us toward the other pole? That's, an empiri- that's a theoretical issue, but it's also an empirical issue. It requires us to, as Pete Bucky so rightly says, to open, out, open up the window and look outside. Including, as I tried to do in the 2002 book, sometimes looking at numbers and, you know, doing econometric tests and statistical analyses of those numerical data. So with regards to institutions, something that has, uh, was pushed recently by Pete Betke, in fact, about uh, Kirzner's work and about the market process in general, is thinking about if we can use the tools of how we think about markets coordinating to think about institutional development. I know Pete has often sort of tried to say like is there a market process in institutional change do you you know in a way that Kirzner's theory would want to bracket that completely where while conceding of course that that structures how you interact you know do you how do you think people could approach that or yeah I hope I hope I've understood your question correctly I, I think the answer is we don't know we need more minds on this topic let's let's try to figure it out um yeah, I think I think Israel Kirzner tends to say, well, the institutional structure, and therefore in, including in particular especially the definition of property rights, that's sort of a given. Market process theory happens within that context. Um, Hayek tells the story of the evolution of, of institutions, as did Adam Smith, as did David Hume in his great history of England. Um, so the the view that it's just somehow outside of economic analysis what the institutional structure is seems seems to me mistaken, um, but that makes life difficult for us. It may, this is a hard problem because, you know, we want to say, oh well, you know, look at the institutional structure that sets up uh, certain incentives and that sets up certain uh, epistemic dynamic and then that determines sort of outcomes for the system. Well, that's great, except that if the if the institutional structure itself is subject to entrepreneurial innovation. Um, or just unintended, uh, unconscious change, um, then then we need somehow something more than just that you know causal direction going from institutions to outcomes. It's clearly got to be an evolutionary story, um, uh, and I th- think we have, as I said a moment ago, some precedents. We had Hume on this. We had Adam Smith on this, but I don't. I, I think we don't have it worked out that well how it works. Yeah, and I, Certainly the, the difference between our notion of coordination and, you know, so that we understand that the institutions change, but some of those changes in markets, we think, right, the, the Krishnerian insight is that there's a systematic element of those that's leading towards a particular kind of configuration. And, you know, that is the sort of 
there's a, there's a, the welfare conclusion that you would get out of being able to look and say, well, we're trending towards this more coordinated state given these institutions. But the evolution in Hayek or even in Smith or Hume is not towards any particular institutional configuration. And so... Right. And in fact, it's, it's, it's almost worse than that, if, if, if I could put it that way. Uh, although I, I think the open-endedness of evolution is actually a good thing. But uh, in terms of trying to get a grip on, you know, how social processes work, it's it's like very, it's almost like it's disappointing because they're so open-ended. Uh, so as humans, we should celebrate that, but, you know, trying to understand it. Because, because evolution is creative. Even biological evolution is creative. Uh, there's a sense in which I think it's not... Um, it's not a, um, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm a little low on blood sugar. It's not a um, law-governed, it's not a law-governed system. There's a sense in which it's not a law-governed uh, system because in the standard sort of, you know, model of what a law-governed system is that we borrow from sort of classical mechanics, from physics, you write down uh, the laws of motion for the system, you write down the initial conditions, and you turn the crank, and then the thing unfolds, okay, at least up to a uh, error term. Okay? But that's not actually how evolution works. We can't, the, the, the so-called phase space is not stable. In other words, at any moment, there's what Stu Kaufman calls beautifully the adjacent possible. There's all these possibilities, uh, niches, if you will. And this is true in biological evolution and it's true in social evolution. And the agents in the system, whether they're organisms, genes, molecules, persons, firms, okay, um, will we'll seize some of those opportunities or niches existing in the adjacent possible. Most of them will not be seized. The system iterates, and now you have a new set of possibilities in the adjacent possible. Some of them will be seized. Others, most of them, will not be. And the system iterates again, and so on. And the thing is that you can't list all the possibilities and all the adjacent possible futures that are going to unfold in the system there, there's, there's literally too many of them to list. There are uncountably many of them. So you can't, more than uncountably many of them, I think, in my, in, in my estimation. So what you can't do is write down these laws of motion in the first place because that requires a stable phase space, like the space in which you know, events can happen. But if the space in which events can happen is changing, if the dimensions of the, of the system are changing in unpredictable ways, you can't write down that, those initial laws of motion. So the system is really open-ended. Um, if the system is open-ended, then, you know, equilibration, disequilibration, that, that changes the dynamic on that. If I freeze the institutional structure, freeze the evolutionary process, and ask where the system is headed, okay, that's, that's an old-fashioned, straightforward market process, equilibration story. But if I, if I unfreeze them, I can say less about where the system is headed at any moment. Yeah, I, I see that as very related to the critique that uh, Buchanan put down uh, very quickly in order defined in the process of its emergence and longer in the market as a creative process, his article with Victor Van Berg, where he talks about right the sort of inescapable teleology of equilibrium and that, that even Kirzner can't quite get away from the idea that there's sort of a future tapestry that can un sort of be yeah. unrolled versus this sort of creative future. And I guess that's also part of the argument in your most recent article uh, against design. Yeah, that's right. That's the, 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 that evolutionary argument that I was trying to outline was exactly uh, the thing behind it, the 
article against design. That's right. But, you know, there, there's kind of an easy resolution for Kersnerians on this because if you think about the evolutionary story I just told, okay, so, so it's the system, not necessarily a creative individual, but it's the system that's generating novel opportunities. And you know that's got to be right if you think about biological evolution, right? Because, uh, okay, maybe you want to say that, you know, leopards and gazelles are creative. Why not? They're, they have central nervous systems. They're not so different from we humans as we might wish to believe. But in earlier stages of biological evolution, no, you're talking about organisms that don't have a central nervous system. So the idea of imputing to them some sort of individual creativity seems askew. And yet, this process of biological evolution generated all these novel possibilities. Okay? So, so the resolution for uh, a lot of issues we have with um, uh, Kersnerian entrepreneurship versus, you know, Shackelian discovery, or I'm sorry, Shackelian creativity, is just to recognize that it's the system itself that generates the new possibilities. Right. So, so then, once it's generated, entrepreneurs may discover an objectively existing opportunity that, that is new, that didn't exist before. So, so it's not necessarily a prior error is implied in that. It's a new possibility that did not exist before. That's, that's what's happening. So I, 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 I retain strongly the notion of Kersnerian discovery. I don't think we need to impute... Uh, to entrepreneurs, any particular creativity, ex nihilo creation. We can stick with the idea of, 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 of discovery rather than creation of opportunities if we recognize that novel opportunities, new opportunities, are being created by the system itself, and the entrepreneur is the guy who discovers them. I suppose let me, uh, let me display my radical Lachmanian flag here by saying <laughs> so. One of the implications of that view, though, it seems really difficult to reconcile with a tool where both will say is one of the most useful things in economics, which is simple partial equilibrium analysis. Because if it's the case that, you know, to be, use the example from Kirchner's article distinguishing him from Schumpeter, the horse and buggy industry, you know, the eve of the invention of the automobile is an industry in profound disequilibrium, then it seems like what can we say in a Marshallian framework about the horse and buggy industry? And how do we know that tomorrow, you know. Ah, well, so yeah, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, right, you start thinking in this line and, and your head begins to ache. Your head can ache for hours because the world somehow is, the world is orderly enough for us to get along in it, okay, with all the imperfections and all the surprises and failed plans and everything. But somehow we actually get along in the world. So, so you start to think, well, wait a minute, what novelty? There must be, you know, and, and, and it's how do I how do I reconcile the the seemingly um, irrefutable intellectual insight about novelty with the common sense observation that we are able somehow, pretty much, more or less, to get along? And I think the key point that's that that's somehow often hard to grasp is that it's an evolutionary system. So, so um, the, uh, our expectations about institutions, others, prices, etc., emerge from uh, our past experience. If, and, and point toward a future. Now, if we imagine a more rapid rate of change, then we have to imagine people pulling back in their plans 
from a more distant future to planning toward a less distant future because of that uncertainty, because of that uh, doubt occasioned by this great rapid rate of change. Okay? So they'll pull back and, and plan for shorter horizons, not longer horizons. Okay? So the pl people plan for the, for the, uh, as far out in time as they may reasonably do. Okay? So there's this mutual conditioning of like how far into the future we, we plan so, so it's a kind of self-defined uh, thing. You, you, you can plan a day ahead. You can't plan a millennium ahead. And where between one day and one millennium, how far out can we go? I think the answer might be less than five years, judging from the Soviet experience. But well, no, no, I don't think that's right. That, that's clearly not right because because in the capitalist system, many profit-seeking enterprises make plans that extend well beyond five years. So it's institutionally dependent. You think the the a, it's institutionally dependent. B, the problem wasn't that the that the Politburo picked the wrong time frame. Unit, right, picked the wrong time frame. The, the problem was that they didn't have market prices for capital goods. Right, um, but that yeah, but 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 it, it's going to depend on the industry, the firm, and and the degree of specificity of your plans. How far out you can push that planning horizon, and and if if we imagine you know that somehow the planning horizons have gotten pushed too far out and things are chaotic, then we have to imagine a kind of scaling back of the division of labor, which is going to imply a scaling back of the rate of innovation. See, so it becomes a self-adjusting process. Okay. A mutual conditioning between the elements in the system. That doesn't logically eliminate the possibility there could be periodic catastrophic collapse. Okay. Although I find that mm, sort of Keynesian, post-Keynesian concerns about that to be exaggerated and mistaken. Um, but it does tell you that there is this endogeneity to planning horizons and an endogeneity to the rate of novelty and innovation in an evolutionary system. Do you see that argument as connecting with the sort of discussion of the change in the rate of technological growth that Tyler Cowen, for instance, talks about in The Great Stagnation? I'm just sort of thinking that that sort of argument about this endogenous change in the rate of innovation seems a lot like some of the arguments that he makes for why he thinks that there's this I, I don't I don't shift. see a connection, although that may be because... You know, I'm mistaken. I should see a connection, but I, I don't see that much of a connection. That book is a, it's a funny little monograph. It's, it's a beautiful but funny little monograph because it seems to me there's two arguments that go on at the same time. And, and I, I don't know when he's making which argument. So, you know, and one argument is it's the, the low-hanging fruit argument. Well, you know, most of the, most of the innovations that we might do, they're, they're pretty much that's harder to make a new innovation now. Uh, the other argument is that, well, no, you know, we've, 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 so, we've gone so far down. We've gone so far down the road of crony capitalism that we've got this bramble of regulations, restrictions, and you know, monopolized elements all over the system, so that we're we're barring innovation from the door in order to protect people's rents, their special interests. Um, and I, I never understand when he's making which argument. I don't think either argument is related to the so-called horizon principle we were talking about before, right? Um, and I don't think it's true, the first argument, the idea that somehow, you know, we, we've, we've plucked all the low-hanging fruit from the innovation tree, and so it's just natural that all future innovations are going to be more mild and more fewer and far, farther between them. I just think that's wrong. Yeah, I guess I was thinking that you could possibly imagine sort of a, an issue with the horizon leading to that sort of, sort of, it's not just a question of, Again, I understand the you know, is it a policy issue or is it just there's sort of this underlying technical change? But um, 
yeah, I guess it's interesting in that that time horizon, and you say like you're not concerned about the same kind of like catastrophic collapse that post Keynesians are. Uh, in, in, in part, I'm sorry. In, in part because uh, I feel I've turned that into an empirical question. So it's true, pure logic isn't going to tell me whether there mightn't be, you know, a sudden collapse of expectations, or to use a, a term from Lionel Robbins, um, a cluster of errors for no particular reason. Okay? Uh, but then, you know, if, if you have a theory that tells you when that sort of thing is more likely and when that sort of thing is less likely, and you test that theory against history, and history seems to confirm that the, the that catastrophic collapses happen when the theory predicts they're more likely, which means also something like you know more big player influence or you know uh, money mischief. Okay, then you start to say, well, okay, experience and experience seems to say we don't have a, uh, to fear a catastrophic collapse apropos of nothing. We have to fear catastrophic collapses that are policy errors that we can that we can correct and If you leave those minimize. expectations to one individual, suddenly a, a random sudden collapse doesn't seem as implausible as if you have a whole market. Well, and well if you if and if you leave money growth rates or or um, uh, centrally determined interest rates to one individual or one small body of individuals, then, yeah, you have to have more fear for this sort of thing. And so all this this sort of, you know, calm, sanguine attitude I have about uh, um, uh, about the, the system just collapsing for no particular reason is reinforced by re remembering the role of evolutionary shaping. Okay, So a, a lo the logic often of this sort of radical subjectivism of a guy like uh, Shackle or of Keynes in Chapter 12 or often of, 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 of Ludwig Lachmann, it's a non-marginalist argument. It's like, well, we can't just sort of, it's so clear, I think, in, in Chapter 12 of Keynes' general theory. Well, you know, the future is unknowable. Therefore, between right now and any moment in the future, however proximate or distant it may be, there's this great complete void and nothingness, right? So there's no there's no gradation, there's no marginalism, there's no recognition of evolutionary shaping of the system, of our expectations, of uh, contracts, long-term contracts, helping to bridge the gap between the present and the future. Um, it's just like, well, you never know, could fall apart. Well, that's not a theory. That's just anxiety. Yeah, I, I guess I, I always... My reading of Lachman tempers that part of it more, I guess, than to, to see the Shackle or Keynes and that, you know, both because of the work and legacy of Max Weber, but also he has this uh, very nice article in Towards Liberty, which is uh, a 1972 volume, I believe, that was a Mises Feschrift. And uh, in that he he begins sort of his discussion of the market process and the Misesian view by saying it's so obvious that the market process coordinates these behaviors so well, what is it about the real world that causes us not to be perpetually in equilibrium? And so uh, that text, I think, really re tempers my reading of some of the more, you know, Shackelian pure kind of we know nothing about the future yeah. arguments. Well, yeah. And in fact, uh, Lachman has that beautiful book on capital theory. Um, and this this sort of, you know, Radical subjectivism is not it's not contradicted in that book, but it's somehow it's not present in that book either. And I feel a certain tension between, you know, his radical subjectivism on the one hand and then the story of equilibration he's got in, in that book. And, and I, I put this exact question to him once in his office and he kind of looked at me and he got this little smile and he says, well, 
we understand these things better today than we did in the past. So I took this to be a kind of implicit acknowledgement that I had actually found a bit of an inconsistency in his system. On the one hand, he, he views equilibration within the capital structure in his famous uh, book on same as, you know, not really problematic. On the other hand, when he's explicitly talking about, think about expectations or, or subjectivism, it is problematic. Right? I think those are just two threads in Lachman that, so, so personally, right, he wasn't waiting for the sudden collapse tomorrow, but I don't think he resolved those two threads and, and made them harmonious in his work. Yeah, a, a question that I have asked and want to explore future, more in the future is sort of the relationship that is in him and in subjectivist work in general between heterogeneity in lots of different areas and subjectivism. And so sort of how much does Lachman's subjectivism seem to equate with his heterogeneity? So capital is obviously subjective in that what the uses are is mm -hmm. entirely this function of, of individual plans. Oh, go ahead. But that also means, of course, that the, the set of purposes that one can put some physical object to is this heterogeneous set and is right at the moment instantiated in all these physical things that do various things, you know, and so the increasing heterogeneity but also the possible heterogeneity and how much you, yeah. can you collapse those two concepts? We, so we have this kind of, Lachman once said to me, in Menger, all things are ramified. And it's right. We have this, this ramifying evolutionary process. Okay. Now, you, you can't have that ramifying evolutionary process if alert entrepreneurs do not discover and act upon at least some of the new opportunities in the adjacent possible. Okay, So if you didn't have this kind of reframing of sort of the, the economic problem in the minds of innovating entrepreneurs, if you didn't have that, okay, you couldn't have that evolutionary process. It would grind to a halt. So there is indeed a kind of interconnection between subjectivism and this ramifying process of heterogeneity. That, that's right. And um, Pavel Kuchar has given us a, a really beautiful example of this in an article in the uh, Journal of Evolutionary Economics appearing, I think, in 2015, uh, of surrogate motherhood. Motherhood used to be a uniform idea. The mother was the mother. And then we had these new technologies, these new techniques of surrogacy, and suddenly we had to distinguish between the birth mother and the genetic mother. This is a beautiful, beautiful example of how entrepreneurs had to uh, um, were able not only to you know season a new technology and create a new market and all this wonderful stuff like that, but also how that entailed a, a change in our conceptual framework. Right? That's part of the entrepreneur's job is to get us to see things differently. Okay? It's a beautiful example, I think, of exactly this process we've been talking about. Yeah, it's a very interesting sort of, I always point out when my friends, like, how it's made, which is that the show in which they just go through, like, the production process of, uh -huh. like, some mundane goods, so, like, you know, the production of Louisville Slugger baseball bats. And it's just, it's <laughs> Never just, seen it. that it's just a fun. tour of, of each of these factories with a little bit of narration of, like, what each of the machines are. It's the most Hayekian show that has ever been produced on television because, you know, you can look at it and say, like, look, this conveyor belt... The one that is taking, you know, the wood slabs to go to a, a lathe that has very custom machines that make exactly the right thing to make a baseball bat, which is different than the lathe if you go and look at how they make some other object, 
you know, and the conveyor belt has all these different uses, but it's also that each conveyor belt ends up being this different thing. Yeah. And so it's very much both illustrates the sort of eye pencil idea of this radical complexity, but also just how much, you know, the conveyor belt we think of as like a capital object, but it's, you know, it's only meaningful capital in the context of exactly this this process. If you put that random conveyor belt in, you know, an oil factory where yeah. their oil conveyor belt is, you would you would have a mess. That happens a lot in social science. So we have a label, okay? And, and, and the label um, seems to imply some kind of homogeneity. But if you peel back the label, underneath it is actually heterogeneity. That happens a lot. We, in our classes, you know, we, we, we get up in front of the blackboard and draw, you know, supply and demand diagram. And then we'll have, you know, some humble example like men's shoes, okay? But wait a minute, what do you mean men's shoes? There's different sizes, different styles, different fashions, different materials. Also, where the men's shoe is, 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 is made available, how it's delivered to you, uh, the, the service you enjoy when shopping for the men. Do they make you an espresso or do you have to, like, you know, climb the ladder yourself to get the shoe off the, the uh, out of inventory and try it on? So um, uh, this, this is a just repeated thing. Right. The one, the label seeming to imply one thing, actually representing many heterogeneous elements. Yeah, and sort of the level of where the abstraction is adequate, right? So it's, it makes sense to talk about the market for men's shoes when you want to show how changes in factors would impact a, you know, partial equilibrium. But if you're trying to model, you know, the men's shoe market for some purpose, then <laughs> right. you might right. very well, right. or almost right. certainly, are going to lead people astray, right? And that's sort of the point of the the critiques of the, you know, structure conduct performance that you see in the sort of competition and discovery procedure in Kirchner's work, for instance. Yeah. 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 The danger of labels. And you get another danger of labels you get is is um, that sometimes the label substitutes for a model. So I see this really a lot with the the work on a forensic science. The forensic scientist is a scientist. So if you don't peel back that label, it's like, oh, okay, science is like a truth machine, right? And you sort of don't, same thing with experts. Well, he's an expert. Right? And um, uh, it's, it's instead valuable to peel back the label and ask, okay, so he's a forensic scientist, uh, she's an expert, whatever, but what does that mean? How does that, you know, if, if we put a, a person and not a truth machine in that place, what happens? If we so, put a person and not a truth machine under that label, forensic scientist or expert, then what happens? How do you see your work relating to David Levy's work on experts, which I know has been pretty extensive in sort of the same veins of thinking about the epistemic properties of, you know, knowledge generation in these various contexts? Well, Peart and Levy have been a great influence on me. I think they've done great work. Their notion of um, analytical egalitarianism, I think it's really, really, really important. What does that um, term mean to you? Because a lot of the time, as someone who took David Levy for history of thought, I've tried to explain this to people before, and they've said, I don't really get what he's going after, even though they understand the particular arguments. It's a, it's a hard point and very fundamental and a, and a recurrent point in social science. Are you above the system or are you in the system? So famously, Adam Smith, you know, uh, excoriated the man of system who thinks he can move, you know, pieces around a chessboard as if they don't have a principal emotion of their own. He forgets that if those so-called chess pieces are actually people, everyone has a principal emotion of its own. So uh, 
when we, you know, you if you want to have a scientific understanding of society or a, or just a scholarly understanding of society, whether you conceive of yourself as somehow a scientist or not, so the, you're, you know, just automatically putting yourself in a position that you're above the system and you're looking down on it. And it's easy to forget, that, no, wait a minute, hold it, hold it, you're in the system, okay? So analytical egalitarianism is putting the analyst in the model, okay? That's hard to do because the minute you say okay i want to understand you know my society or i want to understand the market process you're you're imagining yourself in a posture above and on top of the system so so you know we, we have to somehow resist the, t the temptation to stay self-contentedly in this godlike position of observation when really after all we're in the system we're not above it Okay. This is something Hayek understood. This is something Buchanan understood. This is something Puritan Levy understand, but not everyone in the profession does understand this point. It's in some difficult ways, it's point. like the reverse of rational expectations. Rather than making all of our agents theorists, where this is attempting to make all the theorists agents. Right. That's 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 eloquently and correctly correctly said. Yes. You know, uh, uh, what I like to say sometimes, you know, with, with, with Lucas and Lucas' critique, it's not that you would reject a Lucas' critique. He had a, he had a devastating critique of, of those old hydraulic Keynesian uh, models that still had, you know, uh, some purchase in the profession back when he was writing uh, this uh, critique originally. No, of course, he, he, he was right about that. But, but with him, it's, 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 as you said, you know, everybody's like a theorist. It's, it's smartonomics. Everybody is super smart, including, you know, the, the agents of the system and the theorist. Okay? I prefer dumbonomics, right? The people are not so smart. Neither is the theorist, right? So there's the same epistemic equality, the same analytical egalitarianism, um, uh, but it's dumbonomics, not smartonomics. Or say the same thing yet another way with Lucas, right? Even not only is the theorist above the system looking at the system, but the agents in the system, the the, the actors, are able to take an out of body experience and look above uh, themselves and look over themselves from the same perspective that the theorist has. So it's out of body economics. I prefer embodied economics. Yeah, uh, Jim Buchanan has recounts a story of a bunch of different times in his correspondence that I've been processing, where he says that they submitted a paper, uh, him and Richard Wagner, to. Uh, the journal of political economy when George Stigler was the editor on fiscal illusion and it was rejected on the Stigler's grounds that he would not accept a paper that had imagined that people wouldn't do their arithmetic yeah. and so it's just a, such a very different view of, uh, of how people are and of course that's something that Buchanan you know in his papers on Kersner but also you know stuff like natural and artifactual man sort of very much wrestled with in the, the Frank so Knight let's, legacy. Let's think about this in the, for a second in the context of behavioral economics uh, what you often have, you, you, you can't generalize because, after all, I think Vernon Smith would be considered a behavioral economist. I think he understands the point about uh, analytical egalitarianism quite deeply. Uh, but often with, with behavioral economics, uh, the idea is that, well, we're smart, they're dumb. Right. So so, you know, we can we can, once we're clued in to the you know, logic of um, uh, heuristics and biases, uh, we smart theorists can observe them at work by, uh, with uh, agents in the system. Okay? So there's this this asymmetry between the the theorist and the agent. I'm smart, they're dumb. Okay. Uh, with Lucas, you have the, the 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 good quality of symmetry between. Okay, but it's that I'm smart, they're smart. 
And I think we have to recognize, yeah, they're dumb, but careful, so are we. That's the that's that's dumbonomics, right? The symmetry that that recognizes the mm, bounded rationality of both the agent and the theorist. And then, if you look at the the institutional sort of world that the the behavioral economics sort of leads to in the libertarian paternalism, right? You actually have these people who are, end up getting set up in exactly the kind of epistemic situations that your work on forensics suggests don't work out very well, right? If you're the person in charge of all of the choice architecture rather than, you know, having this suite of different attempts to figure out what people can do, then you're you're liable to open yourself up to exactly the problems, both that the behavioral research thinks is, you know, ingrained in the sort of psychological machine of the brain, but also these sort of just general problems of not being exposed to a procedure of discovery. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The, 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 as you said, competition, as you alluded to, competition is discovery procedure. It's an evolutionary process. So entrepreneurs with their innovations propose, but then they're filtered. And that's an evolutionary process. That's creative. That's um, functional. Where we, we when we make the expert, you know, when we rely on the expert, boy, we put a lot of heavy cognitive load on what, after all, is an entity no wiser, no smarter than the very agents he's supposed to be making decisions for. Somehow, though, right, one worries in that that you have a kind of with the questions that forensics is often asked to interpret, a kind of like worry of not you know nihilism per se, but just that you have to do these very particular cases of history rather than just having a theory. So do you see something that like could be changed so that we have a mechanism for getting closer to maybe not truth machines, but truth discovery? Oh, well, I mean, I absolutely have argued for what, uh, in my more theoretical uh, work on this kind of stuff, I call democratic epistemics in some co-authored work. Uh, <clears throat> I call it d democratic epistemics. So the basic idea is redundancy. Um, so one of my relatively concrete proposals is, well, you know, how about if we sometimes, just randomly sometimes, send the evidence to, say, three crime labs? And work in the human subjects lab suggests that three is the right number. We'll send the evidence to three crime labs instead of one. Okay? Let's see if they give the same answer. Okay? They have to be careful. It's got to be set up right because if we have the same biases uh, in, in all three labs, so that so that's the so-called non-ergodic system with strong correlation across um, uh, messages, then then you have a problem. But if you set it up right, so that you have three independent labs giving truly independent judgments, okay, uh, that redundancy clearly, I think, will in, improve epistemic performance of the system. You bet. So so that's that's a just a basic principle of sort of Austrian epistemics is redundancy, because it's a basic principle of evolutionary systems is redundancy and degeneracy, which is we'll have the redundant elements get the results that they get in different ways. So they're not really identical units repeated. They're heterogeneous units, but all tending to generate the same functionality for the system. That, that's called in biology, that's called uh, degeneracy. Um, I, I prefer to call it ecological redundancy because that, I think, conveys better the idea of what, it, what this so-called degeneracy is. It's ecological redundancy sort of relates a bit to the discussions that come up every so often about the role of replication studies in science in general, and in particular in social science. Yeah, People often connection. don't make the point about this ecological sort of um, right, redundancy 
that not only when someone attempts to replicate a study, one's not just running exactly the same regressions using exactly the same statistical program. You know, one's attempting to look at the same phenomena, acquire the, the thing, you know, it's a pure replication. It's just a verification that someone, you know, didn't attempt to manipulate their images or whatever in Photoshop, which if, you know, as someone who sometimes reads retraction watch you see happen yeah. but uh is different than this point that... well actually it's been found that that pure replication is hard to do in economics actually um uh, so you know how, how big a problem is that well i think it's a big problem because there's all this stuff getting published and it's like well, you know, so we're getting smarter about it now you have to archive your data and you know so so I, I think we have made real improvement uh, on it it remains true however that um, a really good empirical one, result is one that's robust okay so yeah okay I can replicate your result but also if I do something sort of similar but not exactly what you did do I get the same bottom line okay that's a robustness notion okay um, and I think I, I think it remains true today, as it has been in the past, that we're we, that the economics profession tends to be a little bit insensitive about these robustness issues. We could be smarter about that. Yeah, sometimes I think that it's uh, also that we're content with still doing a mistake that Mises points out, and that we think that there's meaning in what the price elasticity of potatoes was from say 1930 to 1938 <laughs> for what we should do about price elasticity of potatoes now as if those two yeah. things could possibly yeah. be related so in that sense we should we should expect if you run the results with you know new data that you'll get possibly a different result as opposed to the difficulty merely of re replicating the old data yeah and in, in, in the sort of evolutionary system we've been describing that generates novelty that ramifies you know what what are going to be the numerical constants well you know maybe there's some i don't know but but they're going to be not so many what I'm more confident in is are the patterns, certain general patterns that you know Hayek identified when I talked about explanation of the principle and pattern prediction. And that's yeah. so that really gets back to those things are at a higher level of anonymity in sort of the ideal type structure of the theory. And mm -hmm. so in a very much way shows the connections that we started with and that how the Schutz and the phenomenology actually really is integrally, you know, integrally under part of the epistemics of it and that's something that really interests me and i think is very awesome about how that structure works because of you read this and you especially if you read some of the later phenomenologists that say don lavoy was interested in or, or you know gadamer or like I, I tried to read zahner once and you sometimes get the sense that you've moved on into sort of new age like <laughs> woo you know yeah, but woo woo yes there's a lot of woo woo in the in the sort of heidegger and stuff coming after heidegger and uh, schutz is not in that camp he's that's that's uh free Heidegger. So yeah, I share your what seems to be your preference to, to stay away from the woo-woo and the uh, which is to say the ontology. So so that the thing with Heidegger is is that phenomenology becomes all about ontology. Now if you go back to Schutz, he he's got uh, phenomenological psychology in his famous book, uh, The Phenomenology of the Social Worlds. He he actually stays within the realm of, of what is called phenomenological psychology. So that's in, in this world of phenomenology, that's relatively mundane stuff. What he's not doing is transcendental phenomenology, right? Trying to somehow, you know, un, um, uh, unpack the 
ultimate structures of consciousness as they really are, trying somehow to get to really real reality with a supercharged, turbocharged Cartesian meditation. That's not a part of the project that Schutz is working on. He's just trying to understand how the social world manifests itself in ordinary human consciousness. Okay? And then the sort of ontological, you know, understructure for that, we don't have to be as concerned about. I think Lavoie, I think, tried to stick to not, or certainly I don't think see him as engaging in tr taking the transcendental part of, say, Gadamer when he attempted to, you know, go through the work on hermeneutics and connecting that as a sort of way to bring, you know, Schutz and where research inspired by Schutz had gone to, you know, connect those traditions rather than just having, you know, this one brilliant thinker who was this offshoot of Mises who then you know, has this whole body. So. Well, I mean, certainly certainly, you want to, you know, avoid hagiography. you got to know what you're talking about. So, so yeah, that's only a good thing, and Don was just awesome in that regard. Uh, on the other hand, one of his students, Virgil Storr, wrote an article a few years ago, published in, I believe, the Review of Austrian Economics, saying, as I understood Virgil, saying essentially, well, you know, we maybe in terms of the substance of it all, we probably should have just stuck with Schutz and not not got on so much about this Heidegger-type stuff. And that was very gratifying to me. That's kind of how I always felt. Um, you never know. Maybe I felt that way only because I had a false or limited understanding of Heidegger. But that's always how I felt. So I, I felt very, you know, gratified when Virgil came out with that view. I, I, I view him as having very much the, the, the knowledge and judgment to make that kind of a statement. That's a, that's a very interesting sort of, like, piece. I always... Yeah, I always felt that the transcendental stuff was like Neoplatonism, but in continental German. Uh, but that's sort of taking us very far afield of Austrian economics. Yeah, I'm, get, I'm getting a little dizzy at this point. It's very hard to think about these things. And, and, and you do have to be smart about, you know, you have to think about abstract issues if you're going to be a good economist. You have to talk, think about stuff that's not economics. Uh, but you also have to be smart about not, not getting in the cul-de-sac of some abstruse thing with no, you know, path back to a real problem like how do we fix forensic science or how do we prevent business cycles from at least being too, you know, severe. Um, so, so always, you know, be willing to take that crazy path out to some odd topic that doesn't look like economics, but be careful that there's a path back. Well, I, I can't think of a better thing if I was going to ask you for your advice for you know, up and coming people interested in economics than that. So at that point, I think I'm going to thank Roger for joining us here and uh, yeah, wrap up. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.